On the 26th, you had 1.1 million travelers through TSA checkpoints. On the 27th, you had nearly 1.3 million travelers who went through those TSA checkpoints. So people did travel across the country this year, but Dr. Fauci says that because of all the traveling we have seen this holiday season, he's worried that in a few weeks, two to three weeks, we will see a massive surge of COVID-19 cases. There is never in the history of this country or the world been in demand for this level of diagnostic testing. And I think, unfortunately, because we as a nation, we as a world, have always treated diagnostics as a, a supplement or a really a cost, as opposed to a component uh, essential to healthcare, we were unable to really step up and integrate diagnostics in the way that we needed to uh, into a plan. And so what we really need to be thinking about isn't what is a diagnostic strategy or what is a vaccine strategy, but what is actually a COVID strategy that takes into account human behavior, diagnostic accessibility, vaccine accessibility, and the long-term maintenance of the pandemic from now until you know, herd immunity. Welcome to our podcast about biotechnology breakthroughs, the DNA of all living things, and the DNA of scientists, companies, and patients who make miracles happen. I'm Phyllis Arthur, BIO's Vice President for Infectious Diseases, and you're listening to I Am Bio. We've all had a teacher or a boss say to us, please stay home if you're sick so you don't infect other people. But what if you don't feel sick at all, but you are still infecting others? Around 4 in 10 people who contract COVID will never have symptoms. That's good news for them, but clearly these folks should stay home while they're infectious, since what's harmless to them could be fatal to others. The problem is that super spreaders have no clue that they're super spreaders, and a truly alarming number of them packed into busy airline terminals over this holiday. It's a sad irony that they miss their friends and family so much that they unwittingly put them at risk. As a consequence, across the nation, our ICUs continue to reach and exceed full capacity. What a godsend that frontline health workers are now receiving their COVID vaccines. They'll need them with a predictable New Year's calamity now unfolding in America's hospitals from coast to coast. 2020 will go down as the deadliest year in American history. But don't be surprised if January 2021 goes down as our deadliest month. It didn't have to be this way. Just imagine if we mass-produced a COVID test, one as quick and reliable as a home pregnancy test that could accurately identify asymptomatic carriers of COVID. Imagine if we had vending machines on the corners that dispense COVID tests like they do in South Korea, or if you could order one off Amazon or walk into 7-Eleven and get one, having one in your house as soon as you needed it. Imagine how much easier it would be to keep asymptomatic COVID carriers out of the airport, out of our schools, out of societal circulation, until that same rapid test could give them the all clear. Everyone's talking about the vaccine miracle right now, and rightfully so. 
But we've yet to determine whether the Pfizer or Moderna vaccines prevent you from transmitting the virus to other people, or if they just keep you from getting sick. And that's the critical public health question right now. And we want to know the answer, and hopefully we'll know it pretty soon. But as we await that answer, today we turn our focus to the urgent work of creating more reliable, rapid COVID tests, especially for asymptomatic people. It's a question for all of us to consider. If our seemingly innocent actions were threatening to hospitalize other people, including those we love, wouldn't we want to know? Wouldn't we want to change? Today's guest is Raul Danda. He's the CEO of Sherlock Biosciences and one of the key players in our industry's work to transform the national landscape for COVID diagnostics. In May, Sherlock made history by earning the FDA's first authorization for a medical product using revolutionary CRISPR technology. Raul's company manufactures a COVID lab test that can return results in an hour with pinpoint accuracy. Using CRISPR, Sherlock's test eliminates all of those false positives and false negatives that have shaken national confidence in the reliability of COVID diagnostics. Sherlock is committed to manufacturing tests Americans can believe in. The CRISPR test was only the beginning. Now the company is working on an even more transformative breakthrough, bringing that same level of reliability to at-home diagnostics. So for anyone who has ever wondered why a COVID test can't be as safe, easy, and plentiful as a home pregnancy test, Raul Danda feels you on that, and he has big plans to deliver. Raul, welcome to I Am Bio. Thank you so much, Phyllis. It's a pleasure to be here. So in my opening earlier before we started chatting, I talked about how our airports were jam-packed with people over the holidays, and I noted the terrible irony that Americans who miss their loved ones so much may have inadvertently traveled there and endangered them. In an ideal world, everyone getting on a plane or leaving their social bubble to be with their loved ones should be able to take a quick and easy COVID test from the comfort of their own home and then travel to see family with more security. We're just not there yet as a nation. So with these three metrics in mind, accessibility, reliability, and speed, can you talk through the COVID diagnostics landscape in the U.S. for our listeners? What are we doing well What are the different kinds of tests we hear about that the county health department can use, that a doctor's office or hospital can use? What are the differences? And why are we falling short when compared to some other nations? There are really three varieties of tests. One is PCR, which we all consider to be a gold standard. And what we really mean is something that looks at the actual genomic content of the virus, the actual RNA of the virus, its genetic sequence, that tends to be what we rely on as the, as the most reliable test. The others are antigen and antibody tests. Antigen tests are looking at some protein on the virus. So similar to that PCR technology, we're looking directly at the virus. The, the third is antibody testing. Antibody testing is really testing the individual to see if they've raised antibodies, if they've had an immune response to the virus. So of those three, the first two, PCR and antigen, tell us whether or not you're carrying the virus. PCR itself is far more sensitive, and so it becomes more reliable. Antigens 
aren't as sensitive. And so we're not always sure with an antigen test whether we're detecting the virus. The antibody test gives some information, but really just whether or not you've been exposed to the virus. So we don't know if you're contagious, if you're sick with it, if there's something else going on, and when you might have been exposed. Now, the other dimension of location really speaks to the accessibility. You know, are we getting a result in the moment where that person's being tested? And that's something that has traditionally not been very available in diagnostics. With PCR, this gold standard, it has almost always been in a central lab. And so you're sending tests to some remote location. You're not getting that result in any expedient way. You're certainly not getting it the same day. Um, And antigen testing tries to make up for that because it is a little simpler to run. You can run those in more remote locations. Antibody tests are like that as well. And, And what we're learning is, and what we have known, is that it's easier to do protein-type tests, antigen or antibody tests, because they don't require the same kind of equipment as might an RNA or a DNA-based test that would, that would drive a PCR result. Now, what is exciting in the United States is that there has been a lot of innovation around all of those areas. And where I think we're doing quite well is in how we are generating tests at large volume and lots of different tests at large volume. There's over 200 COVID tests now. And that's because the government has lowered some of the barriers to getting tests to market. At the same time, innovation is leading towards more remote kinds of testing. And so we've seen for the first time, and I think because of COVID, PCR tests and RNA tests that can be done more decentralized. And, uh, and I think that pattern is continuing. Where we haven't quite come yet, and where I think we can have the biggest impact, is if we can take all the simplicity of the antibody or antigen tests, those home pregnancy tests, as you put it, that kind of simple form factor, and bring to it the accuracy of the lab for those PCR tests. And that's exactly the direction that Sherlock's going and where we see that we'll be able to deliver solutions um, sometime this year, in fact. You've made big waves in May because the FDA made its first authorization of your product using CRISPR. And that was exciting to have a small company cross the finish line first. I want to ask you to just explain a little bit about CRISPR before we dig into the diagnostic specifically. It's a great question because when people think of CRISPR, they think of gene editing, the you know, cut, copy, paste a gene sequence into uh, an individual or some other uh, genetic code. And uh, as a gene editing tool, it is incredibly powerful and incredibly simple. And, and what it brings to life sciences in general, CRISPR as a, as a system, is high precision and incredible simplicity. Now, about three years ago, Uh, Our founders, uh, particularly uh, Feng Zhang out of the Broad Institute and Jim Collins out of the Broad Institute, MIT, and the Wies Institute, came together and thought about how might we use CRISPR in a diagnostic sense. And what they discovered was that the usual enzyme that everyone thinks about when they think about gene editing, Cas9, has a number of cousins, in particular Cas12 and Cas13. Now, these molecules do very similar things. They seek out a genetic sequence, and then they start cutting things. And instead of cutting and replacing, what they do is they cut 
elements of surrounding RNA or DNA in a solution. And so instead of cutting the DNA or RNA at targets, these enzymes, Cas12 and 13, start cutting a whole series of surrounding um, DNA and RNA sequences. And what Fong and Jim discovered was that if you label these surrounding RNA and DNA um, uh, molecules with uh, some kind of signal, in this case fluorescence, that cutting actually releases a very, very strong signal. And that signal is easily detected. And so this became a very simple way of doing a diagnostic test. Sherlock is the first company to bring CRISPR through a regulatory process and to product um, for healthcare. And that's something that we're really, really proud of. So, Saru, it's really exciting to hear you explain how CRISPR is applied to the diagnostic. That's really interesting. I'm going to ask you to stop and define two terms that you hear so often with diagnostics and make sure everyone understands them. The difference between specificity and sensitivity. Can you take a minute and just do that? Sensitivity and specificity are, are really the key metrics around accuracy for any diagnostic test. Sensitivity is a measure of how accurate is the test at identifying positive results? And so for everybody who is really infected, the sensitivity is, really, is a measure of how many of those infected people is the test picking up. And so if 100 people are infected in some testing population and the test only picks up 95 of them, then that test is said to be 95% sensitive. Specificity is then the measure of the negatives. So if 100 people are negative in a testing population, but the test only identifies 95 of them as negative, then that's a 95% specific test. And so the two together are a total measure of accuracy, but sensitivity identifies your positives and specificity is a measure of your negatives. So the scope of this pandemic is so daunting in terms of the number of cases and infection. So I imagine that makes manufacturing scale up a challenge. Um, There's almost uncountable numbers of people who would benefit from expanded COVID testing. How are we doing as a country in meeting the demand for COVID tests overall? What is a company like yours with a gold standard test using a cutting edge technology doing to compete in what has to be a very crowded market? There is never in the history of this country or the world, been a demand for this level of diagnostic testing. And I think, unfortunately, because we as a nation, we as a world, have always treated diagnostics as a supplement or really a cost, as opposed to a component essential to healthcare, we were unable to really step up and integrate diagnostics in the way that we needed to into a plan. And and while we lacked a national plan, we also lacked an infrastructure that supported diagnostics appropriately. So the challenge we have is that we have capacity to run testing, but we have been trying to fix the challenges that that pre-existed in healthcare to make diagnostics easily accessible. Now, at the same time, we are also in need of aligning the kind of test with the location of testing. And that is something new that we're, we're trying to manage. And so in terms of meeting demand, I actually think that our manufacturing capacity is there to provide the number of tests necessary. I think where we're lacking is in how we bridge 
access to those tests um, to the individuals who need the result. This is an area where I think you know the government could actually play a very strong role. And while the government has made some bets around diagnostics, it's made much larger bets around vaccines. And but diagnostics will remain part of the solution. And so what we really need to be thinking about isn't what is a diagnostic strategy or what is a vaccine strategy, but what is actually a COVID strategy that takes into account human behavior, diagnostic accessibility, vaccine accessibility, and the long-term maintenance of the pandemic um, from now until herd immunity. And all of that still remains to be worked out. So, So I think that where we see younger companies struggling is the decision around how we bear that risk for a public health need when we also recognize that because it's a public health need, there can be more uh, participation by the government to solve it. So you guys really are a poster child for real-time adaptability. A year ago, you were a brand new startup. You had the goal to make at-home diagnostics the new normal for everything from oncology to sexually transmitted diseases. And then here comes COVID, right? And you have to start to make decisions about what you're going to do as a business around this global pandemic where you have technology that could help. Um, And so you have to have that conversation with your board and make the monumental decision to transform what you're doing and dedicate yourselves to really helping to solve the pandemic problem. Um, People have a lot of misconceptions about our industry. They think they don't think that things like this helping to alleviate a global pandemic, motivate us, but they really do. Take us through your conversation with your board and your investors about weighing your responsibility to help solve the pandemic and help humanity versus your commitment to the bottom line of the company. Our industry is full of people bright enough to do just about anything. People who can take a faster path to success, to wealth, to you know any other measure of success that they might apply to themselves. The thing that I've always found fascinating and compelling about biotechnology is that these incredibly bright people choose to get into healthcare. When one can do anything, choosing to get into healthcare really is saying, I'm making a commitment to improving the world in a a direct and measurable way. And when we founded Sherlock, everybody who came to the table, investors, founders, employees, Every one of us came to the table with that view. If we can't make the world better in some way, then we don't want to engage on any particular project. And so when COVID struck, it was, it was nerve-wracking for a lot of reasons. When we all think about COVID, back in January and February, <laughs> none of us really knew if this was going to be a big problem or not, but we were all fearful that it might. So we at Sherlock were tracking it. And towards middle of February, it became very clear that this pandemic was breaking out of China into other locations. It was coming to the United States. Um, It may or may not be contained. Maybe it burns out in the spring. Maybe it doesn't. But no matter what, it seems like testing is going to be a critical component to managing it. And at the time, there wasn't really any clear path for a company as young and early as we were, you know, as you said, just under a year from launch at that point, and just a dozen people. How are we going to address this? So what I did is I went to my board and I said, I think we need to, we need to engage this problem. At the very least, uh, 
it's going to advance our technologies. At the most, we're going to have a significant impact on a pandemic. And the board unanimously said, this is why we're here. This is what we need to do. And so in that span of hours, I remember I walked into the bullpen where all the employees sit at a moment before we all wore, we all wore masks. And I said, you know, I think we all need to change whatever we're doing and focus on COVID. And what I was struck by and touched by was just how rapidly everybody got on board. I mean, immediately, everyone just said, yeah, that's what we're going to do. We, they turned around, literally pivoting in their chairs from facing me to facing their computers. And within a couple of days, we had a plan on how we were going to get it done. It's fantastic. It's a great example of a small company really putting that innovation to work and, and finding a partner to make it a reality and bringing it to people. It's, it's congratulations. So, so the holy grail of diagnostic tests is really a massively scaled test that you can use at home, like the pregnancy test. Um, and true to your company name of Sherlock, you guys have actually conducted a scientific investigation and you've figured out how to make such a test. Um, tell us about your progress on this test. Tell us about the technology and science that you're deploying to make an at-home test for COVID-19. For an at-home solution... You know, I've, I've been in this industry over 20 years, and the at-home, simple, high-accuracy test um, that can look at RNA or DNA has been the holy grail since the moment, you know, I, I myself first touched by Pat. The challenge has always been, how does one miniaturize the massive instrumentation that supports that kind of test? And while a lot of companies have tried to solve that, what they realize is the next challenge is if you can miniaturize it, how do you make it cheap enough and reliable enough so that it can achieve the kind of price point that really makes it accessible? It's not, it's not enough to be simple. It also has to be affordable. So when I learned about what Sherlock was developing, and in fact, before it was even Sherlock, as you know, uh, before when I started to meet all the other co-founders and looked at the technologies that were on the table, there were actually two. One was CRISPR, where we launched that. But that point-of-care test still doesn't bring it home. It's still an instrument-based test. And so the other technology was a synthetic biology-based tool. It was developed out of the Wiese Institute and, and Jim Collins' lab, one of our, our founders, and um, in collaboration with our chief technology officer, Will Blake. And when I saw that, I saw something that I'd never seen before. It was a brand new way of thinking about diagnostics. This wasn't about miniaturizing known process. This wasn't about adapting PCR. This was about thinking out of the box and approaching it in a completely new way. What if instead of amplifying a DNA or an RNA, or an RNA target, which is what PCR does, we're amplifying the signal that we're trying to detect. What if we don't try to make many, many copies of DNA or RNA? but instead make many, many copies of whatever it is that we detect. And that was the basic principle of how this technology we call Inspector was born. And so we have taken synthetic biology, which you know, is thought about as a manufacturing tool, a therapeutic tool, and applied it to diagnostics in a novel way. And in a very simple process where you collect saliva, you put that saliva onto a test strip, just like a pregnancy test, you wait, you know, 30 minutes, and then 
after that period of time, if you're carrying the virus, that strip will light up. You know, we've made incredible progress since we uh, made it a focus of the company. Uh, and we anticipate seeing launched in 2021 during the pandemic. What's the price point you envisioned for this product? So when we, we're thinking about the price point of this to be somewhere, you know, in the $30 range. It's incredible. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a remarkable thing. And, and that has a lot to do with the kind of test that it is. It's not going to require any instrument. There is no heat stabilization. There is Everything's done at ambient temperature. There are no um, machine components, which is what differentiates it, I think, from some of the solutions that are being developed today for molecular testing. So that really brings the price point down dramatically. We've partnered with the Gates Foundation uh, with the intention of driving the cost of this down as far as possible. And that will also open the door for us to deal directly with governments, whether it's the United States government or other governments, to make this accessible at, at much lower price. It's interesting because I've seen a picture of uh, in, from South Korea, a vending machine where the COVID tests are in there and you can just pull one out of a vending machine. Is that part of your vision, the idea that these are really able to be placed truly, as you said, where people are, whether that's the local CVS or, you know, even the local 7-Eleven, like even more ubiquitous than CVS? That is exactly the vision. The idea that you can go buy this off the shelf at a retail store just as easily as you could anything else that you would for your, for home health care. So we're going into a, a new administration, uh, President Joe Biden or, or President-elect Joe Biden um, and his administration are obviously making COVID their top three priorities, as he said. And how would you advise the president's transition team and the president-elect to think about the national conversation on COVID testing? What needs to happen to really bring testing to the fore and help get us out of the pandemic, in your opinion? My feeling about what the Biden administration and its task force should be focused on is very much on integration of activities. It's really critical that we think about this crisis and this pandemic as a broad public health challenge that requires us to integrate every aspect of its maintenance into a unified plan. So we don't need a testing strategy. We don't need a vaccine strategy. We don't need a therapeutic strategy. We don't need a digital health strategy. What we need is a COVID strategy of which each and all of these pieces are a part of it. What we also need to do in a very short amount of time is be critical and diagnose our history of how those pieces have been integrated in healthcare because every, really, not every, but probably 90% of all of the pain that we feel from the, um, the COVID pandemic and as it relates to healthcare is because all of that pain existed before the pandemic. There have been holes in how we integrate these pieces and holes in what we invest in to support healthcare uh, prior to the pandemic that have come to the fore because of the pandemic. So we need to diagnose those problems, integrate how diagnostics fits with both screening patients, treating patients, how vaccines fit with broader public health, 
how education fits with how all of those pieces come together so that we know how individuals should be managing both contact tracing and their own exposure with individuals. And I'd also add that we need to maintain all of that momentum past the pandemic so that when we solve the pandemic, we are prepared for the next crisis and we can prevent the next crisis. And that we also fix some of the challenges that exist within our healthcare structure that don't need to exist, whether that be health equity, whether that be the role of diagnostics, which is just 3% of healthcare spend, but drives 75% of healthcare decisions, whether it's emphasizing vaccines because those don't get as much attention, and whether it's building a digital health framework that takes all of those pieces so that we can manage healthcare systematically as opposed to reactively. So I understand you have a foundation that's very near and dear to your heart, committed to addressing COVID on a global scale. And you've announced that proceeds from your COVID diagnostic sales will go into programs supporting racial and gender diversity in the STEM disciplines, STEM for science, technology, engineering, and math. The T21B Foundation is one of the things I'm most proud of in terms of what Sherlock has accomplished. When we founded the foundation, there were a couple of things that were really driving it. The first was we need to make more tests available. And if somebody else can innovate around our technology, we want to do that. And so we put all of our IP around CRISPR and COVID into the foundation for anyone to access. So the profits that we make from our CRISPR and COVID tests are being reinvested in the foundation and, and, and as you say, um, supporting STEM education for minorities and for gender diversity. I know that many think that they are gender or, or, or racially blind when it comes to delivering healthcare, but your conscious approach to it can't undo your subconscious bias and the way that you might approach either a woman, a black person, a Latinx person, all of those are going to be biases that even the most self-aware individual can bring to the table. Whereas it's, it's something that I've seen myself. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm raising two black children who are adopted, and I've seen them being treated differently by you know, white doctors and they might be from black doctors. And, I, and, I, and I'm very close to the medical profession and, and I know how I get treated and um, I know how they get treated. And sometimes it's not appropriate. And for me, I feel like if we can increase the representation in our field, we'll increase both the innovation that we're bringing to the table because we'll have a diversity of thought and we'll increase the impact of it because that diversity of thought is going to apply it to everybody instead of the cultural biases that tend to narrow that focus um, that I think we can break out of. You've touched on so many really important issues that are so important to the future of healthcare. So here's my last question. So in addition to being an entrepreneur and a scientist, you're also an author. <laughs> you wrote a book called Guiding Icarus that seems especially relevant today. Talk to us about this book. Who is Icarus and what's guiding him? Talk about the journey and how this book relates. First of all, I'm flattered that you even know about my book. So thank you for that, Phyllis. I, I wrote that book many years ago because I felt that there was a lack of um, 
a lack of focus around the importance of ethics and um, biotechnology. So it's a very, it's a book very much focused towards the industry and takes industry case studies to um, examine how we develop technologies and what do we do to do that responsibly as corporations. And the the myth that I draw on is Icarus, who is the son of Daedalus, an inventor. And Daedalus um, fashions these wings that uh, he and Icarus use to escape um, an island that they're imprisoned on. And um, Daedalus, the wiser of the two, warns Icarus, saying, you know, don't fly too close to the sun, otherwise you'll burn your feathers, or too close to the sea, lest you weight them down um, and drown, but fly a middle course. Um, I think that's from Ovid. And and, um, Icarus is too enamored of the technology, and, uh, and as we all know, flies too close to the sun and melts the wax on his wings that plummets to the ocean and doesn't survive. It doesn't heed Daedalus's advice. And you know, the, the metaphor here is really around the thoughtful development and application of technology to be both socially responsible, um, but also beneficial to those developing it. And that if we fly the middle course, if we think about how we can gain from our innovation but also not become too hubristic and overcome with pride to be self-centered rather than thinking outwardly about those that, um, those that we can aid by, by developing these technologies. If we can do those things, we can have the biggest impact, which I believe is both a moral obligation, but also good business. These are the things that will ensure our success. Our success is going to be measured both economically and by its impact. And if we think long-term about the work we do as an industry, as, as a company, as individuals, I think we all want to know that we did good and we did right. And my book really is a focus on how can we do both of those things. That's fantastic. I actually I feel like that's an extremely appropriate Kwanzaa present, actually. Um, so uh, it would be very good to give that to people. If my kids cared about anything I did, I would give them as a I'd give them my book as a Kwanzaa present. But it would just end up <laughs> it would just end up you know balancing some uh, sports memorabilia that they have <laughs> sitting underneath their computer terminal, right, with their switch on top. I understand. <laughs> Well, this was a fantastic conversation. I'm very excited to see your technology be deployed broadly. I'm certainly excited about the COVID test, um, the at-home COVID test. I think there's so many applications for this across infectious diseases, as well as all the other unmet medical needs, and extremely excited to see the results of your foundation and the work with STEM and increasing the number of minority scientists working across all the different problems we have with the healthcare system. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Uh, It's really been a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you so much, Phyllis. I really appreciate your taking the time with me. I really enjoyed this. And uh, thank you again for all the work that Bio does to keep our industry moving forward. That's all for today. Don't forget to subscribe on your podcast player of choice. Or even better, if you learned something useful today, 
please share a link to the I Am Bio pod with your family and friends. To learn more about our work of heroes and sheroes in lab coats, please visit imbio.org.